money makes the world go round, is used to make even more money, and as a result, some would even go as far as to say that money is the root of all evil. Whether that was the first or your hundredth time hearing me use that introduction, it's really important to understand how money relates in the political, social, and economic worlds. With that being said, on this episode of The Melting Pot, I, Kevin Craig, take you through wealth inequality and poverty in order to teach you the general the generalization of these two concepts and tell you how to apply them to extemp and to congress. Let's first start off with a definition of wealth. According to the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality, wealth is the current market value of all assets owned by households and the net of all their debts. It's important to understand the definition of wealth because that then gives us the definition of wealth inequality, which is when certain demographics don't have access to the resources that other demographics have. And while there's several different debated theories that uh, that cause wealth inequality, I think that the biggest factor is a difference in income from one demographic to another demographic. And that's because income is decided by a huge variety of factors. That's because wages are determined by things like the status of the current labor market. So right now, it's uh, so right now, obviously wages aren't very good because of the status of the labor market. Education: a person with a college degree is more likely to be paid uh, paid better wages than a person that doesn't have any degree. Technological growth. Uh, and then personal abilities or things that make you stand out uh, to the average Joe. And the thing that all of these factors have in common is that they all contribute to the theory of wealth concentration, or the reason why wealth inequality is growing to be an even bigger problem in the United States, especially when looked at over the past course of the century. Wealth concentration is stuff that you hear a lot, like the rich get richer while the poor get poorer. Uh, It refers to that top 1% of the United States, and some even use wealth concentration in ways that they might not have even thought of before, like uh, sometimes the United States is described as a winner-take-all system where the rich where rich corporations uh, take the spoils of the capitalist war. Uh, that's just yet another example of wealth concentration. So wealth concentration is that under certain conditions, newly created wealth is concentrated in the possession of already wealthy people. In other words, people with money get more money or the rich get richer. And the reason for this is pretty simple. That's because people who already have wealth have resources to invest and accumulate more wealth, which makes even more wealth in the future. And that makes the process of wealth concentration Uh, uh, that makes economic inequality a really, really vicious cycle. Um, Because if you don't have the wealth to get wealthier in the future, it's really hard for you to get wealthier in the future. And that's because poverty, inequality, and growth are linked together in some semblance of a triangle. Um, If you like to think of it in terms of a mathematic equation, uh, we can look towards A equaling B, and B equaling C, which means thus that A equals C. 
So that might not make a lot of sense now, but basically poverty is related to inequality and inequality is related to growth. So therefore poverty is related to growth. And that's because inequality influences the propensity of growth to reduce poverty in a variety of ways. Lower inequality creates faster growth and that means that low inequality can benefit the poor in a couple of ways. First, it benefits the poor by increasing overall growth and average income, and it lets them share in that growth. In other words, when there's lower barriers for less advantaged people to create growth, it benefits them by allowing them to uh, grow their average income and increasing their growth, and in letting more of the less advantaged share in that wealth. And here is what the relative importance is. Obviously, any growth is good for the poor, but it's important to note that while wages have made like modest increases in some areas, if like New York making minimum wage $15 or in um, more competitive labor markets increasing wages, uh, it's important to note that overall the long-term goal of reducing poverty um, is a rising national income, and that should be the overall growth. Because if maximizing national income through economic growth is the primary goal, then some improvements in distribution can enhance economic efficiency. Or, in other words, kind of like what I just said, basically, to reduce poverty in the long term, we have to increase income because, again, that allows less advantaged people to contribute to the theory of concentration, where they have more income to invest in them uh, to invest in ways for them to get more income in the future, or they have the resources necessary to get wealthier in the future. Like if universal basic income was a thing and everyone had a starting plateau, um, had a starting plateau of income, that would allow some people to maybe invest in the professional clothes or attire necessary to get a job, or maybe to secure transportation necessary to get a job or even secure living arrangements so that way they can get a job. Or if someone already fits the, the criteria, uh, maybe they don't need universal basic income, so then just an overall increase in their wage would allow them to maybe invest in their education by either finishing their, uh, finishing their college or maybe going back to college. And for someone already insanely uh, wealthy, um, increased incomes help them by allowing consumers to drive the United States economy, uh, which kind of uh, which kind of leads to this trickle-up effect, where the money kind of still goes to the one person. But overall, without a doubt, an increase of national income it, uh, lowers poverty across the board. And the reason why we're even talking about poverty in the first place is because poverty is a huge impact, not only in the debate worlds, but quite literally the physical world. Um, so let's first kind of get into what poverty is exactly because I know that we've thrown that a lot around. So poverty is not having enough material possessions or income for a person's needs. And it's important to know that it's a multifaceted concept which includes a social, economic, and political elements. That's what general poverty is. But absolute poverty is the complete lack of the means necessary to meet basic personal needs such as food, clothing, and shelter. 
So to put this into perspective, the United States has a lot of poverty. Um, there's Homelessness is a big deal in places like San Francisco or highly populated urban centers. And people, there's a lot of people living below the poverty line where, um, a fam- where the head of a household doesn't make enough income to provide for all of their family's needs. But the um, absolute poverty, the other aspect of poverty, is more prevalent in still developing countries because that's the complete lack of means to meet basic personal needs. And oftentimes uh, we see that that's where developing countries are really highlighted. And here we also contribute to that effect by now highlighting those developing countries because nearly half of the world's population, which is more than 3 billion people, actually lives on less than $2.50 a day. And about a third of that, or 1.3 billion people, live in extreme poverty, which equates to people living on less than $1.25 a day. And the really heartbreaking number is that 1 billion children worldwide are living in poverty, and 805 million people don't have enough food to eat, and that more than 750 million people lack adequate access to clean drinking water. So the designation and distinction here is that the United States definitely has poverty as a pretty rampant thing. But while the United States is has fairly large impoverished areas or demographics, uh, we certainly don't see extreme poverty the way that other areas in the world see. Um, which is people living on less than $2.50 a day, which is almost unthinkable, especially because U.S. minimum wage is $7 and some cents, meaning that if you work for a single hour on on minimum wage, you'll earn and be able to live on three times as much as half of the world's population, which is just absolutely insane. But it's important to note that, fortunately, um, the world economy is growing and the value of annual global economic production has doubled, and that now more than a third of the world population lives on more than $10 per day. And just 10 years ago, it was only a quarter of people being able to live on more than $10 per day. So we've definitely made great strides, and this just goes to further highlight the correlation between... Uh, national income growing and poverty decreasing. And um, the number of people who live on more than $10 per day increased by 900 million in the last 10 years. So to kind of put this into perspective on the global arena, um, South Asia uh, South Asia and East Asia and the Pacific have really seen this um, have really seen their demographic shift significantly with poverty decreasing a lot and those two, those two regions, or basically Asia as a whole, being responsible for the for high international levels of poverty decreasing. Um, but one area that has had a pretty stagnant performance is Sub-Saharan Africa, with the number of people living in extreme poverty there um, increasing marginally, but for the most part, still remaining to be kind of a consistent flatline. And so you might be wondering, how do people and economists or uh, relief agencies get these figures and the standard measure of of measuring poverty is the official poverty measure that's at least what the united states uses um and the concepts behind the official poverty measure is that poverty is linked to welfare 
and that there's a few different ways that it can be measured. But the official poverty measure yeah, combines income, threshold, and family in order to measure poverty. Um, so, in measuring uh, poverty across the world, the share of people living in extreme poverty in 2017 um, particularly in the sub-Saharan Africa, which is the middle region of Africa, uh, reaches 100% in some countries, uh, which is a really dark, uh, really dark red on this World Bank map that I'm reading right now that you unfortunately don't have access to. Um, but I'll tell you that the general range for sub-Saharan Africa is anywhere between 45% to 100% of people living in extreme poverty. Um, on the flip side, if you look so outside of Africa, you'll see that the that most of the world's uh, world's population lives on uh, is only five to ten percent of the world's population lives in extreme poverty outside of sub-Saharan Africa, with the exception of India, where the numbers are closer to twenty to thirty-five percent of their population living in extreme poverty. So. Fortunately, in the fight to end global poverty, there's been a lot of progress being done with the average percentage, with the average number of people living in global poverty decreasing, but ending extreme poverty by 2030 is likely to require growth with declining inequality, because remember, um, those three concepts are linked in this intrinsic triangle, so we need to not only increase growth, um, but we also need to decrease inequality in order to ensure that people have opportunities, and especially because you have to decrease inequality to provide people with a platform to grow. So that means that in 2015, the U.S. poverty line was revised, um, and enrollment in primary education in developing regions has reached 91%, um, which is good because, again, um, education is one of the things uh, to de that decreases inequality and thus allows people to achieve growth. Um, so that's largely one of the huge contributing factors in previously developing regions being able to decrease the number of people living in extreme poverty. Other factors in decreasing poverty are things like the child mortality rate being cut by more than half, um, and huge strides in medical progress like 37 million uh, tuberculosis infections have been averted. Um, and there's definitely a lot more. Um, but when creating solutions to fix problems, there's lots of factors taken into consideration. Overall, there's going to be some give and there's going to be some take in terms of money within the international economy. So, what this means is as one region or area um, is seen to be making strides, another region or area uh, is sometimes hurt by these demographics. So what this means is, like, in Asia in particular, while they've seen decreases of poverty because of increased economic growth related to manufacturing um, and really uh, a shifted focus to Asia as the world's, like, economic center, um, like, the old industrial West has been hurt significantly um, with, like, places like Detroit being especially devastated. And thus, while... Uh, Manufacturing centers in China have had a decrease in poverty. Detroit has seen an increase in poverty. So that's what um, that's what in economics that people call a trade-off, because trade-offs create opportunity costs, which is one of the most important concepts in economics. Because whenever you make a trade-off, the thing that you do not choose is your opportunity cost. So there's 
trade out like in the grand scheme of things and looking at the international economy from a third person point of view the trade-off for china's growth was detroit but things um but when applying this concept on a more individual actor level uh, it's important to see this through like the lens of corporations because they are the main actors in the global economy and um so and so specifically what this means is um, automobile manufacturing plants moving from Detroit uh, moving from Detroit to China um, saw a growth saw an opportunity for growth in increasing production and in cheaper wages but through opportunity cost was was maybe Americans uh, refusing to buy that specific manufacturer because they no longer were supporting American manufacturing uh, or even more simply on like an individual level um, say you have two options. You could choose to do your homework, or you could choose to go out to the movie with friends. Uh, if you chose to go out to the movie with friends, your opportunity cost was doing your homework, uh, which is going to cost you pretty severely in the long term, whereas had you done your homework, your opportunity cost would have been a night out with your friends. Um, and so, you like might not even realize it but you're making little decisions like this all the time and weighing factors to determine what you should do and on the international arena that's the exact same process that happens um especially in terms of wealth and income inequality and poverty um in terms of like analyzing those trade-offs that we just talked about so in conclusion here's a few takeaways that i'd like for you to take away First, wealth inequality is determined by certain demographics and wages, and it varies in countries and regions. And wealth inequality is largely caused by wealth concentration, which is a theory where the rich stay rich and the poor get poor. Three, poverty, inequality, and growth are all linked together in this triangle, with each of them affecting one another. Fourth, the ultimate way to combat inequality is sustained poverty reduction, which is only possible when national income is rising, and that should be the overall goal for economists or governments looking to decrease poverty and inequality. Um, Then, the world economy is growing, and the value of annual global economic production has doubled. Also, poverty is a multifaceted concept, which includes social, economic, and political elements. And finally, the United States uses the official poverty measure which takes into account income, threshold, and family. So, now I'm looking at ways that we can apply these concepts into the world of debate, Congress, and extent. It's cool um, to utilize, so particularly in Congress and extent, because that's my area of expertise, the theory of wealth concentration is super beneficial to describe, uh, to describe, uh, to describe things like why the rich, uh, like why the world's their top 30 billionaires um, increase their growth by like a hundred percent. Oftentimes, you'll see article, you'll see publications like Forbes uh, release figures like that, or they'll or they'll highlight how companies are continuing to make profits. Um, and you can use the theory of wealth concentration to explain both of these phenomena. 
like businesses with more capital and more profits are able to invest that capital um, into making even more money by like opening new manufacturing centers and to the world's richest billionaires get richer because they are able to use their wealth to invest in ways to make even more wealth. Um, so that's the way to apply the theory of wealth concentration. But you could also utilize what we talk about um, in ways, in other ways, in different speeches. Like you could explain what the concept of wealth inequality is, explain explain the link of wealth inequality um, to poverty and to income, and um, most importantly, if you ever have a question asking you uh, what is the best way to fight poverty. The ultimate answer is to always increase national income. So, I know this might have been a lot of information for you to take in, but if you need clarification on any part, um, feel free to rewind. To feel free to rewind into the part that you were confused about, um, and even reach out to me if you know who I am. But for those of you who don't, uh, but for those of you who don't, stay tuned on future episodes on wealth inequality, poverty, and income because we'll be for sure to revisit these topics. With that being said, thank you for attending this week's podcast and learning about wealth inequality and poverty because it's undoubtedly a foundational skill that you'll use in almost in almost at least one, one speech every tournament in the near future. And with that being said, thanks for listening to this week of The Melting Pot.